Welcome back. Episode 5, Journeys into Whiteness. I'm your host as always, Jimmy Lincoln. And I have got a story for y'all today. I am so nervous and excited about this story. I'm excited because I'm putting myself back into the, the forefront of a story. Not back into, but maybe for the first time. If you're a repeat listener, which I know you all are because y'all have been hooked already. But if you're if you're a repeat listener, you know that so far in episodes one through four, I've been an observer. I've been a third party who's either or I guess a second party who's either heard something or been told something or saw something. And in today's episode, in episode five, I'm an active participant. So that's why I'm excited, because I think. As I've told y'all before, this podcast is as much about me as it is about anything else. And it's as much about me and whiteness and how I participated in perpetuating a culture of whiteness and a culture of white supremacy as it is about anything else. So I'm excited to be kind of training the lens on myself. But at the same time, I'm nervous because I'm training the lens on myself, right? Like, it's a lot easier to talk about camp counselors, former football coaches, or even grandparents, although that gets a little tricky, but all those are a lot easier to talk about than yourself. Now, granted, today's episode takes place when I was a kid, so some of my actions are still a little easier to talk about than they will be in some future episodes. Because if y'all think I've been hard on other people so far, I'm afraid that by the time we get to episode 20 and 25 and 30 and some of my adult life behavior comes to light, I don't know if any of y'all going to like me anymore. But we'll deal with that when we get there. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. So that's where we're headed today. We're going to tell a story that involves me, both of my younger brothers, and both of my parents. And I'm going to tease y'all a little bit. Then we're going to take care of some housekeeping. Then I'm going to tell the story. Kind of our normal our normal process here on Journeys into Whiteness. And here's the teaser. My entire family was either a primary or secondary participant in wearing blackface. That's all I'm going to tell you right now. This story today on one hand, is so clearly an example of white privilege and white supremacy. And on the other hand, is more than most episodes confusing as shit in terms of what I should think about the behaviors that happen. But that's all I'm going to give you right now. I'm just going to let you know that today's story centers on blackface and that I wore blackface. And that's something that for most of my life, I would have never even, A, admitted to, because who wants to admit to wearing blackface, but B, even realized, and that's the scary part. The B is the scary part. But you're going to have to just, you're going to have to sit on your hands for a few minutes. You're going to have to, you just have to delay some gratification. Because we're going to get to that story and we'll, and like always, we're going to get to that story and what it means. But first off, a little housekeeping. And I told y'all back in an earlier episode, I think episode two or three, I said that if you were tuning into this podcast and you're taking this journey with me into whiteness and into the ways that whiteness has intersected my life and into the ways that I have been socialized into whiteness, as well as the ways that I have hopefully inadvertently, but the ways that I have perpetuated whiteness and white supremacy. I told y'all early on that if you're taking this journey, it's kind of like walking into a building that I live in, but that's still under construction. In other words, I'm just figuring this shit out. I'm trying to be as open and honest and transparent without having kind of a predetermined agenda, which means 
that sometimes after an episode, after talking to people, after maybe listening to the episode, after simply just reflecting back on the episode, things will come to me. And I'll be like, oh, shit. So obviously I'm hoping that happens to y'all as listeners, right? Like that's the whole point of any podcast, hopefully beyond just entertainment. Is a little bit of self-reflection and growth and, and information that, that even if just for a brief moment stops you for a second and says, hmm, you know what? What? Maybe, maybe I, I need to think about things differently. So here's kind of the result of that self-reflection for me after episode four. And just a real, real, real quick recap. Episode four was all about a comment that I heard as a peewee football player. And it was a comment that was not directed to me. It was a comment about a fellow football player who was black. And I overheard my peewee football coach tell one of his assistant coaches that this black football player ran like a deer, but that he needed to get his head out of his ass. And we talked through in episode four all the the kind of connections that that comment had with with centuries old legacies and centuries old stereotypes about not just black bodies, but black minds and black attitudes. And for the most part, and I don't know if I did this intentionally, but I'm, I might have subconsciously done this. I kind of exempted myself from that, that story, right? I was an eight year old or a nine year old and I overheard it and I didn't really explore how I might, in my my later years as an adult, be guilty of some of those same things, some of those same mindsets, some of those same attitudes that my peewee football coach was. And what I mean by that is that I started to think about how I perceive professional athletes and whether or not those perceptions are affected by notions of race and whiteness and white supremacy, and really not, not whether or not, not if they're affected by those notions, but, but more to the point, how they're affected by those notions. And I came to the conclusion that at least when it comes to one athlete, at least when it comes to one single athlete, I think I am guilty of doing exactly what my Pee Wee football coach was doing. And, and by that, I mean, I think I'm guilty of perceiving the actions of a person whom I do not really know, whom I do not know well, whose brain I cannot, cannot read, just like any other person's, right? But perceiving those person's actions through a racialized lens, and judging them based on some, some stereotypes and some norms that value and, and prize whiteness over anything else. And I don't like admitting that because if you haven't guessed, a big part of my, big part of my super ego, how I wish I saw myself is this idea that I'm quote unquote woke, right? Like that I get it. But I'm here to tell y'all, the only thing I get is that I need to keep working at this shit. And this little brief detour, this little brief tangent, I think will give you some insight into that. So like any, any human that I know that keeps up with professional sports, I like to talk about the athletes I watch. And I like to argue with my buddies about these athletes and I like to pretend that I know things I, I don't. Pro sports is great at making all of us feel like we're experts. We watch a game. We watch a game played by people who are not only infinitely more skilled, but infinitely more, more prepared and better trained than we were. But since it's a game we played as kids, football, basketball, soccer, baseball, and maybe we played as high school. Hell, maybe we even played in, as college, in college, although not me, but others. We feel like we somehow know something about this 
this sport on a real detailed, intimate level, and therefore we can judge the athletes who play this sport. And I guess we do it with celebrities as well. But I know a lot of my friends like to do it with athletes. And we argue over not just their statistical output and not just their behavior on the field or the court. We argue about their attitude. We talk about their intelligence. We talk about how we see them. We talk about if we like them. We talk about their fashion. Pretty much if if it is a personal characteristic, we'll talk about it and we'll argue about it. And I know for me, there's one athlete that I am convinced, the more I think about it, that I'm judging this young man in a way that reflects my whiteness. And that my judgments, therefore, even if they end up being accurate, are a bit unfair. And that athlete is Cam Newton, quarterback for the New England Patriots. Previously, quarterback for the Carolina Panthers, has an MVP, carried his team to the Super Bowl. Prior to playing for the Panthers, he won a national championship at Auburn in his one year of college, or at least his one year starting in college. So a very accomplished, very successful, and I would say as a quarterback in the NFL and as a successful quarterback in the NFL, very well-known professional athlete. And I'm going to tell you right now, from time to time, Cam Newton drives me crazy. Not how he plays, but his attitude, or at least how I perceive his attitude. Cam can at times be short with members of the media. Cam can at times come across as petulant or overly emotional, both in front of the media. There have been times in press conferences, I believe, after after his disastrous play in the Super Bowl against the Broncos. There have been times when he's even walked out of press conferences. There have been times on the sidelines of games where he has looked, for lack of a better word, perhaps disinterested in what is going on in the field, maybe in a game that his team isn't playing well or or that he's not playing well. And though I haven't necessarily vocalized these frustrations, I have to be honest that I find myself getting frustrated with Cam Newton based on his attitude. And yet I can't really say what he's doing that's all that bad. And I certainly can't pretend because I've never met the man. I've never spoke to the man. I certainly can't pretend that I even really know anything meaningful about him other than what I see on a TV screen. And so while he's far from the only athlete that frustrates me, And he's far from the only athlete whose attitude I judge. And some of those other athletes are white athletes. I can't help but wonder if I'm not in some way just as guilty as my peewee football coach. When I look at Cam and I see him being frustrated or what I think is frustrated. When I perceive him from a great distance and my first thought is or my first reaction is, man, he needs to get his attitude straight. Man, he needs to get his head out of his ass. And perhaps he does. Perhaps I'm spot on. Perhaps underneath the physical surface, he does have an attitude problem. But there's no way I can know that. And even that whole descriptive phrase, attitude problem, is so subjective and vague and general that I don't even know if it's useful on its, on its face. But that's kind of beside the point. I think I'm unconsciously, subconsciously holding him to some sort of standard. And I'm convinced because if if my listeners don't know this, Cam Newton's a black NFL quarterback. And I'm convinced that the standard I'm holding him to is affected, even if it's only in some small part, by my whiteness. And how my whiteness 
has led me to believe in certain unwritten rules about how an athlete's supposed to behave, especially about how a professional athlete's supposed to behave, especially about how a professional NFL quarterback is supposed to behave. And this realization of mine and my personal perception of Cam's behavior is fascinating to me because the more you read about Cam and any one of my black listeners already knows this because they've experienced it. But the more you read about Cam, the more you find out that battling perceptions, battling race-based perceptions is something that he's had to deal with his whole career. And that it's very, very likely that a really large majority of white sports fans could see the same behavior by Cam and judge it differently than they would that identical behavior if Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady were to engage in it. Tom Brady, for one, if you watch closely on the sidelines or if you read a little bit about him or even in games, can definitely be perceived as having a bit of a a nasty attitude at times. Someone who yells and barks at teammates, someone who complains to refs. But he's almost invariably described as a leader and a competitor and someone who whatever he does on the field is just based on him doing what's best for his team. Cam doesn't always get described like that, even though his behavior in many ways is very comparable to Tom Brady. And so while I definitely am frustrated by Tom Brady's behavior and by Aaron Rodgers' arrogance, I just have to wonder, and I don't know for a fact, but I have to ask myself a question when it comes to Cam Newton and when it comes to my personal frustration with Cam Newton's behavior, I can't help but wonder if I'm not as I said a few moments ago, repeating kind of the same mindset and the same ideas of whiteness that my peewee football coach was repeating or engaging in 30 years ago. So something I've got to reflect on, something I've got to be mindful of, something I've got to not put in the back of my mind necessarily, but put in the forefront of my mind as I'm watching sports and as I'm thinking about athletes. And as I'm engaging in arguments and discussions about athletes with my friends and coworkers and whomever else I might get in a discussion with. So that's my little tangent. And for lack of a better title, you can call that tangent Jimmy Lincoln trying to hold himself accountable. Because I told y'all, and I'm going to keep telling y'all, this is not a gotcha game. This podcast is not about calling out every single white person in my life. Although by the end of it all, we might do, we might very well just do that. This podcast is as much about me as it is about anyone else. So I want to work really hard to hold myself accountable. And I know that means at times I'm going to come across less than likable. And I think I've got to, not I think, I know I've got to be comfortable with being less than likable. I've got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Or this whole process is not going to work as well as it could. So, I'm guessing a lot of y'all were only half paying attention to that little tangent about myself and Cam Newton. Because you cannot take your mind off of the teaser I gave you six or seven minutes ago regarding blackface. And I told y'all that this story is so odd because the act itself is so clearly something that fits squarely within the theme of whiteness. That on one hand, it's a real easy example to talk about. But on the other hand, The motivations behind this act are so kind of odd and obscure and hard for me to wrap my mind around that I'm still not sure how to feel about the act. But I'm just going to tell the story 
tell you a little bit about how I think I might be feeling, and then, like always, let y'all come to your own conclusions. So let me set the stage. Remember, all about blackface, specifically all about how me and both of my younger brothers all at different times in our childhood wore blackface. That's that's the 30 second summary right there. Three white brothers that at various points in their childhood wore blackface. And just saying that out loud boggles my mind. But let me get back to setting the stage, setting the scene. We only wore blackface one night a year. And my guess is, and I'm not 100% certain of this, but my guess is that at most, each of us wore blackface two or three times in our lifetime. And although I can't remember exactly how often me or either of my two younger brothers wore blackface, I can tell you for certain, with 100% certainty, I know exactly what day of the year we wore blackface on. And some of my listeners, you may have already figured out what day that is. Halloween. Halloween. At some point throughout the 80s and into the early 90s, me and both of my younger brothers wore blackface on various different Halloweens. Never mind you at the same time. And you'll, you'll hear why that is in a, in a moment. But there's a really good chance that if we were getting to a time machine, and go back to any Halloween between the years 1985 and, let's say, 1993, and plop down into my family's house, into my family's living room, you would have found one of the Lincoln brothers in blackface that evening. Never two at a time, but you would have found at least one of me or either of my two brothers wearing blackface on any given Halloween within that time frame. So right now, if you're listening, you're like, what the fuck? You got a whole family of blackface wearers? So let me, let me give you some more details. And these details are only going to complicate the story. But I think they'll give you some more insight. I hope they'll give you some more insight into whiteness and how it can operate. And most importantly, into the moral of the story. And the moral of the story, I'll go ahead and give it to you now, is that intentions don't matter nearly as much as white people want them to. And that's probably true in almost everything we do in life. Like our goals and our motives and all those interior things we have going on don't matter nearly as much as our actual actions. But when it comes to race... White people are obsessed with this idea of intent. And the reason is simple. If we focus on the intentions behind our actions, then we can put up this wall and avoid ever having to really talk about our actions. Because since intentions aren't obvious to anyone, including ourselves, believe it or not, but that's a whole separate philosophical existential discussion, our intentions, by definition, aren't obvious to anyone who's observing us or anyone who's affected by our actions. So no matter what we do in the realm of perpetuating whiteness, no matter what we do in the realm of perpetuating racism and racist stereotypes, we can always avoid, if we so choose, actively engaging with that behavior By simply throwing up the wall that says, well, my intentions were good. Or at the very worst, my intentions were neutral. Therefore, what I did is just a big misunderstanding or miscommunication. And I'm hoping myself and for my listeners that we can get beyond that wall and just say, you know what? Fuck intentions. 
if we're going to really tear down this edifice of white supremacy, we have to just focus first and foremost on actions. And so that's kind of the moral of this story. Now, you might be wondering how the hell are the Lincoln brothers, why the hell are the Lincoln brothers wearing blackface on various random Halloweens throughout the 80s and early 90s? Well, I'm here to tell you. Quite simple in many ways. And for any parent out there who has children that are old enough to go trick-or-treating, you can identify with the dilemma that kind of animates or provides a spark to this story. And it's a dilemma that is apparent myself of two, two children happens to me every Halloween. And it's the dilemma of the costume is what I'll call it. Halloween is an awesome, awesome holiday. Probably doesn't get enough credit. You get to dress up. If you're an adult, you get to dress up and drink and party. If you're a kid, you get to dress up and go get mad candy. And if you're an adolescent, you get to dress up or maybe not dress up and maybe get some candy, but also engage in some hijinks, smashing pumpkins and and such, especially if you're a white adolescent, because you're more likely to get away with that shit. But maybe we'll explore that. Well, not maybe. We'll definitely explore teenage hijinks and how they intersect with white privilege in future episodes. Trust and believe I've got some stories to go with that. But for now, let's focus back on that dilemma of the costume, as I want to call it. And the dilemma is simple. Kids love Halloween. But at least my kids, for the life of them, cannot decide what the fuck they want to dress up as. And if they do decide, they decide at the last minute. And often if they do decide, they decide at the last minute and they want to be something that's not only complicated, but also difficult to procure and surprise, surprise, often more expensive than I would like it to be. They cycle through a million different choices in the, let's say, the month of October, settle on something midway through the month and as a parent you're like all right i got this we'll go down to party city i'll get on amazon see what we can pull together invariably october 30th rolls around maybe even the 31st itself and either one or both of my kids is like nah i think i want to go in this different direction like they're a hollywood producer or somehow someone like that oh i think we're going to go down this different path And because it's Halloween, and because it's a big deal in their minds, you can't just be like, fuck, no, we're not. I mean, I guess you could be, but that's not really how I roll. And so you find yourself as a parent trying to accommodate them. Whether that means last-minute run to the store, spending more money than you ever intended to, and that's usually what happens to me. I got this, this hidden budget in my head, and no matter what, I blow right past that. And so I think that dilemma, that costume finding process is what was behind me and my brothers wearing blackface. I think what must have happened in those years between 85 and 93 is that each of us, and I'm the oldest, so I I guarantee I was the first one. At some point in that period, either couldn't come up with a Halloween costume or the one we wanted to wear was unavailable. Remember, this is pre-internet. And where I grew up in Harrisonburg, as far as I can remember, there wasn't even a party city. There was one store that had Halloween stuff. And thankfully, it was an awesome store. Because it had a little bit of everything, including some super random toys. And this store is Glenn's Fairprice. And I could spend a whole episode talking about Glenn's. But for my Harrisonburg listeners... If you're of a certain age, you know about Glenn's. But if Glenn's didn't have your costume or the costume you wanted or the makeup or the whatever you wanted, then you were out of luck. And so I'm guessing that's how me and my brothers ended up wearing blackface. Is that we either couldn't think of a costume or we didn't like what Glenn's had to offer or we had changed our mind at the last second. Or my parents didn't have the money to make the costume we wanted happen. 
or my mom didn't have the sewing ability. And I love my mom to death, but her sewing ability is at a zero. Never seen her sew anything in my life. Something like that happened that caused us to need a costume and to need a costume that was cheap and easy to create. That's how me and each of my brothers at some point in our Halloween trick-or-treating careers ended up in blackface. But in this next phrase, these next two words I'm going to put together sound really, really odd, and they might not even be possible. But as much as they are possible, I'm here to tell you listeners that our blackface was accidental blackface. I will repeat, accidental blackface. Some of y'all right now, especially some of my black listeners, might be rolling your eyes and saying, how the fuck can you do accidental blackface? Not like we tripped and fell into some black paint and then didn't realize it was on our face and then went out trick-or-treating. True. But as much as possible and as unbelievable as it may be, and this is where intentions don't matter, and this is where context does matter, not just when it comes to race, but when it comes to everything we do as humans, right? We're social beings. Nothing exists in a vacuum. But as much as possible, when it comes to me and my brothers at various points in our trick-or-treating careers wearing blackface, not only did we not realize we were wearing blackface, I don't think my parents realized they were putting us in blackface, despite the fact, and you'll hear details in a, in a second, despite the fact that we knew our face was being covered in black and that my dad was the one doing it. Despite all that, I don't think any of us realized we were engaging in blackface, engaging in the wearing of blackface. Now, I don't tell you all that to, so that you can let me and my parents and my brothers off the hook. I'm telling you that to help illustrate how powerful yet invisible whiteness can be. So now let me give you the details about how me and my two brothers at various points ended up in blackface. It was quite simple. My father, rest his soul, a complicated, complicated man, but a man I love dearly and a man who will come up in future episodes. My father had a go-to costume for me or either of my two brothers, anytime we couldn't think of something, anytime we didn't have something pulled together, anytime we weren't sure what we wanted to be, anytime him and my mother didn't have the money, my dad had a go-to costume. Drum roll, please. The hobo. That was my pop's go-to costume. And in, in many ways, it was brilliant. Because as far as I can remember, it was completely free. Did not cost him a dime. So now, as a parent myself of two children, I can see the benefits of the hobo. I can see the inspiration behind it. Here's what the hobo costume consisted of. Me or one of my brothers wearing one of my father's button-up flannel shirts. My father, at least at this point in raising us, was a man who loved him some L.L. Bean, but a man who wasn't vain enough to throw away his L.L. Bean flannel shirts after years and years of use and years and years of abuse outdoors doing whatever. So he had quite a collection of fairly well-worn flannel shirts. So that's ingredient number one in the hobo costume. Throw one of those ill-fitting, fairly well-worn flannel shirts onto the backs of one of your children. On top of that flannel, you throw a 25-year-old canvas jacket, 
that's frayed at the cuffs, that's faded, that's kind of a, a bluish gray color that my father owned his entire lifetime. I think he originally got this jacket in the Coast Guard. You throw that jacket on top of the well-worn flannel. So there's torso taken care of with the hobo. Pants don't really matter. Just make sure they're not super clean, super neat looking. And for a boy, well, that's not hard. Pull a pair of pants out of the, the hamper. Shoes, just make sure they're not looking too fresh. Which, once again, in my family, was not really an issue. I have since become a sneakerhead, sidebar. As a 10-year-old, I don't really think I was. And my parents were big believers in the one pair of shoe only, wear it till the, till the brakes fall off type of thing. So shoes was easy, pants was easy, were easy. Sorry for that, my grammar nerds out there. Torso was covered by a well-worn flannel and by a beat up raggedy, but still to, still threaded together, still hanging, hanging in there jacket. On our head, a dark knit cap, also perhaps a holdover from my dad's days in the Coast Guard, but the type of knit cap that, that longshoremen might have worn, that'll keep your head warm and you can roll it up a little bit. And then you get a stick, a broom handle, tie a bandana on the end of it, put something in that bandana to give it a little, a little shape. And you got a hobo. So far, so good, right? Y'all are like, when the fuck, how the fuck does blackface come in? It's coming. Now, despite the fact that hobo is basically just an old-fashioned word for homeless, right? And despite the fact that dressing up as someone who's homeless is problematic in, in, many, in many ways, even if you separate race from this discussion, that was my dad's go-to costume. But everything I've described so far, the well-worn flannel, the beat-up jacket, the broomstick with the bandana tied on the end of it, the long swordman's knitted cap, all those details were nice, but the coup de gras. Not only my dad's favorite part, but our favorite part as children. It's also the part that I'm now most embarrassed by. But here's how unaware we were of how problematic this was. I didn't even know I had worn blackface, despite the fact that I remember these costumes well, and I remember me and each of my brothers dressing in these costumes. It never dawned on me that what we were doing was wearing blackface until as an adult, I saw pictures of us in these costumes because the coup de gras. The piece de resistance of our, our dad's thrown together, threadbare, last second hobo costume was a bit of makeup that he would put on our face. And if I can remember, my dad describing it, it was quite simple. The goal was to make us look dirty and dusty, make us look rough and tumble. Because as hobos, as tramps, that's the only word I can think of that is even more old-fashioned than hobo. We wouldn't be the cleanest of characters. Okay. Makes sense. Seems like it would have been easy enough to go out in the yard and get a little dirt and rub it on our face. Or to just not have us wash up, because as boys, we were probably fairly dirty-faced anyway. Seems like you could have covered the dirty face pretty well without going to the lengths that my father did. But at the moment, at the time, I mean, sorry, none of us considered that. Here was my dad's solution to making us look truly hobo-esque. He would take a cork from a wine bottle, take a lighter, burn the end of that cork till it turned black and ashy, let it cool for a brief moment. It didn't take long, a second or two. 
and then rub those dark ashes all over our faces. There's the black face. And in most of the pictures I've seen, it wasn't like a streak or two of black ash on our cheek. It was our entire face covered in black ash. Not menstrual level black face, mind you. Our ears weren't blackened. You could clearly tell we were white children. And you could clearly tell that, you could clearly tell this because patches of white skin did poke out. But if you were to see photographs of this, the immediate first thing you would think, I guarantee you, regardless of what your race is, I guarantee you the first thing you would think is, oh shit, that little kid's wearing blackface. Because I've seen the photographs. And about 90% of our faces is covered in this dark black ash. In no way does it really resemble dirt. But it sure as hell resembles blackface. But more confusingly, more confoundingly for me, even today in 2020, as I tell you this story, is that in no way do I think that myself or either of my two brothers or my mother or father who were all present as we got dressed up and as my dad would blackface one of us, no way did any of us actually think about the racial implications of what my father was doing to either my or one of my brother's faces. Despite the fact that as I said, 90% of our faces, 90% of one of our faces, was covered in black ash. And that despite the fact that if anyone saw us, they would immediately think it was blackface. I don't think that crossed any of our minds. I really don't. I know it didn't cross my mind. I know it didn't cross our, my brother's minds. And if it was in my parents' minds, they certainly didn't say anything about it. And knowing my parents, I don't think they would have intentionally put us in blackface in an effort to make some kind of racial statement, to make some kind of statement about poverty in black folks, to make some kind of statement about where black people really belong. But that's kind of what I meant by the moral that I shared with you all at the beginning of this story. The more I think back on us, trick-or-treating, one of us at least, in blackface. And the more I've looked at these photographs, smiling there in my dad's clothing, black ash covering 90 to 95% of my face, the more I reflect on these moments, the more it comes to me, who the fuck cares why my dad did it? We were wearing blackface. And the reason I think this story fits within the theme of this podcast has to do with how others who must have seen us must have felt. Now, in Harrisonburg, Virginia, like many cities and towns and counties and villages across this country, was incredibly segregated residentially. So I don't know if we encountered any black people as we trick-or-treated. We may have. If so, I don't remember. But if we had, imagine what they would have thought. Imagine what message they would perceive that we're sending. But even beyond that, how were we perceived by the scores of white people we encountered. How were we perceived by other trick-or-treaters, other children? What stereotypes were we inadvertently, but, but still nonetheless powerfully reinforcing them in their minds? How many adults gave us 
candy. And by the way, I could do a whole separate episode on candy, specifically as it pertains to Halloween. I don't know if I could fit it into the theme of whiteness, but we'll see. But how many adults, after they gave us a fun-sized Snickers bar, went back inside, had a drink in their living room, and had themselves a good chuckle? I don't know the answer. But I do know we were running around in blackface. And I do know that it's entirely possible that my father's notion of what a hobo looks like or what a hobo should look like was unconsciously affected by biases that he might have, biases that he maybe wasn't aware of. My father was not an outwardly racist man in any way. And in fact, and we'll explore some of this in later episodes, My father was pretty progressive in most areas of his life, even in racial areas, pretty much so. Now, I will say overall, my upbringing was mostly race neutral in terms of my parents didn't didn't make black jokes. My parents didn't say the N-word behind closed doors. My parents didn't talk about black people at all for the most part. which is not really neutral if you think about it, right? That's all it takes for whiteness to perpetuate itself is for nobody to talk about it, at least nobody who's white to talk about it. Systemic racism doesn't depend on anyone actively perpetuating it. It's a snowball that has long since started its journey down the hill. As long as you get out of the way, it's going to keep rolling. And so that was kind of our upbringing. And I'll explore that in future episodes. And I think this blackface story is just one illustration of what I'm sure my parents thought was the right thing to do by not talking about race at all and by never in any way actively engaging in any racist behavior. How that can still lead to some really problematic behaviors. And so I'll leave y'all today with this story of blackface on Halloween with a, with a big kind of question mark. I'm still not sure what to do with this story. I'm still not sure what it means. I'm still not sure if my father's desire to cover our faces in black ash was driven by implicit biases or just a really poor understanding of makeup. But I am sure we wore blackface. I am sure that at some point, me and each of my brothers in the late 80s and early 90s were walking down a suburban street, pretending in our minds to be hobos with white skin and a black face. I am sure all that happened. And so I think in future episodes, we'll, we'll revisit this topic. But this is one of those stories that just recently came back to me. And I felt like I had to acknowledge it. I had to talk about it. Because even though I'm fairly certain that my parents weren't intending to put me and my brothers in blackface, at the end of the day, that's what they did. And at the end of the day, we walked around in blackface and asked people for candy. And at the end of the day, how those people perceived our blackface was entirely out of our control. It's not like I handed them a script that explained I was a hobo and I and explained why I had blackface on. I just asked them for candy. And so every time I think about this notion of intentions and perception and how what we as white people say and do and how we as all people, what we say and do, has to be understood in the context of how others perceive and understand our behavior, I'm brought back to this story. 
Man, those pictures are not easy to look at today. I tell you what. My youngest brother is is currently dating a black woman. Parentheses needs to put a ring on her finger. I'm hoping he hears this at some point. I'm hoping she hears this at some point. But he's currently dating a black woman. And I know about a year ago, he called me because they were going through a family photo album. And unbeknownst to him, there was a picture of him in blackface in in this photo album. And so clearly that led to a discussion between them. And I don't think it was a rancorous discussion. I don't think it was a contentious discussion. But I can only imagine what was going through her mind when she's sitting next to her white boyfriend. And they flip to page 37 in the photo album. And there her white boyfriend is in blackface as a seven-year-old. Who the hell is prepared for that? So I'd love to hear what y'all think about this story. I'd love to hear y'all's own experiences. Please, please continue to keep reaching out. Please continue to leave your reviews in the iTunes store. Please continue to rate me. Please continue to engage because I I keep hearing from more and more people. And, And while I'm hearing a lot of love and while I love that, what I really love are the stories that I'm hearing from y'all. So please keep sending those in. I'll keep sharing them when appropriate. Episodes six and seven, kind of a two-part episode that revolve around my grandfather and a history book he wrote. So I'm excited to, to dive into that. Thank you again for joining me as always. Please continue to think, continue to learn, continue to grow. I'm Jimmy Lincoln, your host of Journeys into Whiteness. Peace and love. I'm out.